Okay. Good evening, everyone. We are um, about halfway through lesson 12. We're going to finish that up tonight. Um, last week, we started this lesson and really kind of the, the main purpose of the first half of this lesson is on understanding the difference between the invisible church or the, the holy Christian church, the holy Catholic church, um, the communion of saints. I remember um, the difference between that and, and visible churches, right? So visible churches, Prince of Peace Lutheran Church. Um, St. Mary's, you know, Catholic Church, um, you know, Holy Cross Presbyterian, right? Um, understanding and recognizing that there is one church that consists of all true believers in Christ, those who will uh, be in heaven, right? And there are no denominational ties in that invisible church. Um, to be a member is to be a believer in, in Christ and have saving faith in him. Um, and then we talked a little bit about then, okay, so what about these differences between visible churches and why does it matter? What are the things that we should be looking for when it comes to joining a visible church, right? That's where we, where we ended. Um, I remember growing up, um, my, one of, um, my my pastor not my dad but the pastor at the elementary school that i went to he taught his congregation and i i thought it was kind of an interesting thing i've never heard it anywhere else he taught his congregation when it came to the apostles creed that they did not take a break between um i believe in the holy spirit the holy christian church the communion of saints because his point was that those are the same thing. And he wanted people to know that, that the Holy Christian Church is the communion of saints, the fellowship of saints. Um, whereas most churches will say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. And, and when you do that, it sort of gives the impression that we're talking about these different things, right? Um, but really the Holy Christian Church the communion of saints, this is one and the same thing, right? The fellowship of all believers, um, um, all of those whose, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So um, that's what we looked at last time. Now we are going to specifically take a look at kind of thinking again um, about, um, yeah, both the, the invisible church and, and visible churches. What is the work that visible churches are to be about? What is the reason, the purpose for which Jesus has established um, his church on earth? What does he call us to do? Um, that's what we're going to look at to begin with. So the work of the church. Um, Mark 16, Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe uh, will be condemned. So uh, kind of in conjunction with uh, the next one too, uh, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What is it that, that what is the work 
that the church of Jesus is to be about. Teaching, and, and, and oftentimes, yeah, preaching, we would say kind of goes, right? Preaching and teaching kind of go hand in hand. Um, and then what else do we see here? Specifically, which one do we see? Baptism, right? Um, so on the bottom or the middle of the page, we've kind of got the four lines there, four things we're going to talk about. We've got preaching and teaching. Uh, we're going to kind of uh, have those as one. Um, and then baptism. First um, Corinthians 11 uh, is Paul's recollection of the words of institution for Holy Communion. Um, so we see a third one there is, is the sacrament of Holy Communion. And then ultimately, John 20, right? We looked at this um, last lesson um, when Jesus uh, gives to his disciples the Holy Spirit. And along with that, the authority to forgive sins in the name and in the stead of Jesus, right? And we call that absolution, right? So Jesus commanded his church to proclaim and apply the gospel message in these four ways, right? To preach and teach, to baptize, to distribute the Lord's Supper, and to absolve, right? Um, so that really is um, the work that the church is to be about, right? I know there's a lot of other things um, that people want the church to be and to do and to be involved in. Um, but if it comes at the expense of these things, if it takes priority of these things, um, I kind of wonder how much of a church it is anymore. Um, and and you, people have mentioned this. Um, you know, my I've been at churches that kind of felt more like social clubs, country clubs, um, as opposed to actually being a place that revolves uh, around this, right? Uh, administering and uh, proclaiming and applying the gospel as we preach and teach, as we baptize, as we commune and absolve God's people. So um, just a good reminder, I think, right, um, that this is what the church is to be about, that this is what we call uh, our pastors to to lead our efforts in doing, right? Um, the bottom of the page is, um, we've talked about this a little bit last time, but just another opportunity, I think, to clarify it. Bottom of page 86, our mission is to proclaim the gospel so that people come to faith in Jesus and that they know that the forgiveness Christ won for them applies to them. It is theirs. But what happens when a Christian no longer sees the need for Christ's forgiveness? Jesus answers that uh, question in the next verse below. And we looked at this back in our last lesson um, on kind of this is how the church in a formal way can carry out, you know, this idea of church discipline, of seeking after straying members, people who are living in sin, um, to call them back and restore them to God's family. However, sometimes that doesn't happen, right? Um, the bottom paragraph says this, sometimes the church has the unfortunate work of condemning those who do not repent of their sins. Christ calls his church to lovingly, carefully, and patiently follow the steps of church discipline outlined in the preceding Bible verses, Matthew 18. The goal of any church discipline is to win that person back for Christ. The last step where Jesus says, uh, if they won't listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Uh, that last step is oftentimes called excommunication. And there you see again, right? You see the word communion. 
I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. So what is excommunication? It is not kicking somebody out of a visible church. It's much more serious than that. Anyone who is excommunicated will go to hell unless he or she repents. The goal of excommunication should never be simply to remove an unwanted person from a church's membership. The goal of excommunication is to take a drastic step, make a person realize the seriousness of his or her unrepentant attitude so that they will repent and be received back into Christ's family. Um, again, this is something I think that people oftentimes misunderstand. And I'm not saying that every opportunity, every time that excommunication has happened, that the church has handled it flawlessly. We probably have screwed it up more than we've done it well. But the point of this is to simply say, um, I nor the church do not have the authority to excommunicate anyone. You can only excommunicate yourself. I cannot not repent for you. Right? And, and, and that is what excommunication is. It's somebody saying, I would rather hold on to my sin than I would hold on to Christ. I would rather embrace my unrepentance rather than embrace the grace and love and forgiveness of Christ. I cannot make someone do that. I can't force someone to do that. Only the individual can do that. But when the individual does it, then it is my responsibility as a pastor, it is the responsibility of the elders of this congregation, really it is the responsibility of the entire congregation to publicly acknowledge that, to individually, personally acknowledge that to the individual, that this is what you have done, this is what you have chosen, this is where you are headed. Um, and it sort of is like, um, if you've ever had somebody or known someone who was um, maybe battling an addiction or something like that, um, and, and, you know, it finally gets to the point where you say, you know what, um, this is the decision the person makes, and you kind of just have to let them go with it. There's like nothing else you can do, right? Um, and what's the hope? Well, the hope is that maybe, you know, when everyone who knows you and loves you and cares about you now has to kind of withdraw from you, they're really, you know, you hit rock bottom, you take away any of the, the hope and the love and the support that you've had that maybe has enabled you to, to continue to live that lifestyle. The hope is that eventually maybe you kind of wake up and go, yeah, you know what, I I think I'd rather have those people in my life than this addiction. Um, that if I don't make a serious change in my life, I know how this, this story ends, right? And it's kind of the same thing when it comes to excommunication, where you, you, you finally have to look at somebody and say, you know what, okay, um, what you're saying is, 
you no longer want to be a member of the body of Christ. And I really haven't had a whole lot of people who have said that. More times it's, no, I'm still a Christian. Um, I'm just not going to stop doing this sinful thing. And I'm, and I'm confident that God will forgive me. It's somebody who kind of wants to have their cake and eat it too. Somebody who wants to straddle the fence and say, I still want, I still want to convince myself that I'm a Christian. Um, but I have no desire and no willingness to repent over this certain sin. In fact, I, I'm going to keep on doing it because it makes me happy. And I'm just going to roll the dice and take, take my chances with God. Um, that is where we cannot let someone live comfortably. Right? Love says that I have to tell you, um, there, there is no such place that exists as what you have convinced yourself you are living. You, 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 you can't claim to be a child of God and yet stop struggling over your sin. So, um, you know, I think this is something that you'll hear people say, right? Well, the, you know, the church kicked me out and maybe they did. Um, but again, the reality is no church can do that. No pastor can do that. Um, only the individual can, can take himself or herself out of the communion of saints. Um, but when that happens, it is then my responsibility, our responsibility to make sure that that person knows exactly what they have chosen to do, right? And this is where, you know, people will, um, the comment is always, well, pastor, you know, that's just your word, right? Who are you, right? Who are you to judge me? Who are you to, you know, say this? Um, you know, this is between me and God. And again, just as it was valid, when I speak with the authority of Christ to forgive sins, so it is also true where there is no repentance when I speak with Christ's authority to withhold the forgiveness of sins. This is not just my word. Um, I have the full support of Jesus Christ himself. And apart from your acknowledgement um, of your sin, recognition of your sin this is what it means so um again I, I i think you know have have churches abused this have they screwed it up have pastors you know totally botched excommunication absolutely but the reality is only the individual can excommunicate himself right um but it is our job to acknowledge that Right to re to recognize that and to uh, proclaim that when it has happened. So I can remember growing up we had quite a few instances where the excommunicate and it would be announced from the pulpit. Sure. You know, one at a time. Yep. Yeah, seen the light quite frequently. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and when I've had to go through it, um, it's, it has, I, thankfully it's been pretty rare. Um, 
um, when I've gone through it, it is, it is a public announcement. Um, and, and the point of that is not to publicly shame. The point of it is um, sort of like, well, you know, what, what do you do when um, a member of your family gets terminal cancer? You notify the rest of the family, right? Um, I mean, because they care about that person. Um, and so this is a reason to, to keep him or her in your prayers, right? Um, to reach out to them. If, you're, if you know them, if you're close to them, um, continue to call them back. Um, at that point, they're probably done listening to the pastor. So the best chance oftentimes of, you know, kind of reconnecting with a person like that is going to just, it's going to be through members of the congregation. So um, it is something that, that should be done publicly. Um, it should be announced. Again, not, not to necessarily shame the person, although it might. Um, the point is, again, to, to inform, you know, former brothers and sisters of this individual and say, here's the situation. This is serious, right? Um, so, yeah, you know, I think the, the biggest challenge nowadays is um, there probably are more people who should be excommunicated but you can't you can't track them down yeah. right like you, somebody moves and they just disappear and they change their phone number and it's like well i don't know what this person's doing i don't know where they are i i have no idea you know uh where they are and um and sometimes that's intentional right um they don't want the church to find them um and that's unfortunate but um you know, that isn't someone you can, you can assume is living in unrepentant sin apart from hearing that, right? Apart from knowing that. Um, so it's just that those are the ones to me that are challenging, um, where it's like, I just, I don't know where they are. I don't know what's going on. Um, so. All right. Um, public ministry, top of page 87. In order to spread the message of the gospel to others and to nurture believers in their faith, God has established the public ministry. The church calls pastors, teachers, professors, and others to minister or serve publicly in the church as representatives of the Lord. Note what each verse or groups, a uh, group of verses below emphasize about the public ministry. The first one here is from Ephesians 4. It was he the passage says, but the he there is Christ. That's the context. It was Christ who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors, teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So fill in the blanks here. Um, the one who ultimately gives servants to the church is, yeah, Christ, right? Um, it is Jesus Christ who gives. Um, and I think that's, that's something good for us to remember, um, that uh, the, the, the called workers that we have, pastors and, and teachers, um, these are people that, that God himself gives to us for a certain time in a certain location. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times I think people struggle with or maybe wrestle with, 
um, well, I don't like this pastor or I don't like this teacher because they're not good at this or they don't do that. Um, and it's like, yeah, you know, it can be very easy, I think, to kind of focus on the individual and forget it is Christ who gave this person to me, right? Now, that doesn't mean that if they're not doing things that they have been called to do, um, you shouldn't put up with that, right? You should, you should address that, either you personally or, or the congregation publicly, um, but, but just a good reminder, right, to keep in mind that these are servants that, that Jesus Christ himself gives us. The ministry includes pastors and others who have been called to serve in the church. See the list that Paul gives there. And then finally, those who serve in the ministry help to build up the what? Yeah, yeah, the church, but in the way that Paul describes it here is the, the body of Christ, um, right? Um, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God become mature, chained to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Um, another set of verses on this, 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writes to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. And so here, you know, Peter's really kind of using this word elder as sort of a substitute for what we would consider a pastor, right? Um, so, so, so don't kind of have in mind, you know, we have elders like, like lay leaders. Peter says, I, I am an elder, right? Um, and I, I'm appealing now to the elders. Remember, Peter was writing his letters um, to, you know, kind of scattered groups of Christians who were, who were experiencing persecution. And so Peter says, I want to address the pastors um, among these groups of, of persecuted Christians. So he says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Here's what he says. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care serving as overseers there's another word that we 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 can use to refer to to pastors not because you must but because you are willing as god wants you to be not greedy for money but eager to serve not lording it over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away uh, hopefully it goes without saying, but unfortunately it needs to be said. Um, those who work in the public ministry do not do so for personal gain, but to, to serve, right? I mean, that is what the word minister means. Um, you know, and I've had, I've had various opportunities to, to meet with and talk to young people who are either considering or, or preparing for the, the full-time public ministry and you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, advice that, that people give them and, you know, gifts that they need and qualities they should, they should exemplify. And all of that is true. And the thing that I'm always constantly reminding them is, if you're not willing, um, if you do not enjoy serving people, don't be a called worker, don't be a pastor or teacher, because that is literally what you are called to do. And that might sound very obvious. And that might sound very simple. Um, 
but I meet far, far too, too many people um, in, in uh, public gospel ministry um, that just get too fed up with people and all the problems that people have. Um, you know, and they, they talk about the, the difficult people they have in their church and, and this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, what, what did you think you were doing? Um, what did you think you were getting into? Or uh, somebody a while back was talking to me and they were, they were frustrated with another, with another member uh, in the congregation. And, and um, you know, I, I was, I was talking with them about it and, and uh, they say, well, pastor, you know, you, you probably don't have any clue about this, right? I mean, you just kind of think that everybody is is good and perfect and makes no mistakes. And I just said, <laughs> I go, why do you think I would have gotten into this if I was operating under that assumption? <laughs> don't you think I recognize? And, and the reason that I recognize people are awful is because I know myself. Um, and, and no one is, is better or worse than me. And so um, I, I operate under the assumption that people need a savior. People need forgiveness. And guess what that means? When you get a large group of people who need those things together, guess what's inevitably going to happen? Um, They're going to make that obvious uh, between each other, among one another, that they are sinners, that they need a savior. Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, you are here to serve people. Um, and I think it probably was... You know, some of the best advice I was ever given, I still remember it was in uh, a doctrine class I had at the seminary and my, my professor who wasn't particularly a, a huge fan of me, um, but uh, made, made a, a wonderful statement that I've never forgotten. And he said, um, you know what, there, there are going to be things in, in the ministry where uh, something needs to be done and you're going to be tempted to look at it and go, well, that's beneath me. That isn't something that the church has called me to do. Um, and he says, I want you to remember in that situation to just do it. Just do it. Um, if it needs to be done, just do it. Um, because this is what you're there to do, to serve people. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of stuck with me. So, yeah, those who work in the public ministry do, uh, do so to serve. Um, such an important aspect. Hebrews chapter five, kind of a string of a couple more passages. Um, the writer to the Hebrews says this, he, he's kind of talking about being um, a, a, a mediator. He's talk about, talking about being called into this sort of um, mediator type role as someone who stands between God and people. And he says, no one takes this honor upon himself he must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. Even Jesus was called. Think about that. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And if you remember in our Hebrews class, that's a quote um, from um, the Psalms. But it really is kind of a, a picture a reference of Christ's baptism, right? That this is where Jesus was, was called into the public ministry. Obviously, he's called to be our savior, right? From, from before time began. This is, is God's plan of salvation. Um, but at the same time, 
it is here that the father, right, establishes this, calls him into this ministry. So um, we, we recognize that, that no one takes this honor upon himself. And I, I use this example a lot. I didn't move here from Utah and come knocking on the door one day and just said, you know what? Um, I feel like I'm going to be your new pastor. Um, so deal with it. No, the members of the congregation called me, right? The Holy Spirit working through their, um, their, their, the, the calling body here at Prince of Peace extended to me a call. I did not take that honor upon myself. Acts chapter 14. <laughs> yeah. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders. Um, better translation is probably um, ordained elders or even had elders elected for them in each church and committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So again, this idea that as Paul and Barnabas are traveling uh, throughout Paul's mission journeys, how are they training up and establishing um, and choosing men to be pastors of these congregations? Well, this is how, right? So even then, those men didn't just step up and say, I think I know the most about the Bible. I should probably be the pastor. It was either Paul and Barnabas or it was, um, you know, the, the people um, in the congregation that had asked someone to. to Acts 20, this is Peter's fair or Paul's farewell sermon to the congregation in Ephesus. Um, the place where he spent the most time in his ministry, uh, three years, very, very uh, emotional goodbye. Acts 20, Paul says, um, again, to the elders, to the pastors who are there, he said, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So, Public ministers of the gospel are ultimately called to serve by the, the Holy Spirit, even though they may be elected or appointed by the members or leaders of the church. Um, this is why we can rightly refer to this as being a divine call, right? Um, just in the same way that when, when I announce forgiveness, right, it is the Holy Spirit who is working through that message, right? Um, so also, when you call a pastor, yeah, it, it's, it's your decision, you're the calling body, but it is the Holy Spirit who works behind and through that call um, that Christ might provide for you a pastor, okay? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And the pastor has been a new pastor for years, like the mm -hmm. And when he retired, it was a total surprise. And which uh, the pastor who's been there for years, and it's like a, it's like a certain group of people decided that they wanted this new pastor. Sure. And things. So, mm. yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, it, 
it's interesting. <clears throat> Even in our own circles, the calling process can be manipulated, right? Um, guys can vouch to get their names on certain lists and, um, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a dangerous thing. I, I, I would say in that instance, um, despite the fact that maybe they didn't go about it in, in a very godly way, um, a call was still extended. Um, and, and even though the, the means and the motivation might not have been very God-pleasing, um, I would say it still would be a legit call, right? Um, so it, it I, at the same time, you know, I, I think the Lord kind of has a way sometimes of humbling people through their own foolishness, you know? Um, a couple things, uh, we, we were always reminded, right, as we were studying to be pastors that uh, the call seeks the man, the man does not seek the call. And when you get those screwed up, it typically does not end well. Um, another one is, is the idea that um, I remember a, 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 an elderly professor, a guy who'd been around the block and seen a thing or two, and he said, you know, one of the things I, I kind of learned throughout my ministry was um, he goes, uh, not always, but he said, people tend to get the pastor they deserve. Yeah. And, and his point was just kind of, you know, when you take those things into your own hands and you kind of want to have control over things the Lord doesn't necessarily give you control over, well, then you end up getting kind of the situation that you deserve, which usually isn't a very good situation. Um, and I, I only know of a kind of a handful of examples um, where, you know, I, you, you kind of hear through the grapevine um, uh, there was some lobbying for this person and, you know, names were changed and things were done. And then you look back like five, 10 years down the road and uh, the Lord just kind of has a way of reminding people, yeah, don't, don't screw with this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, I, it's one of those things where, I mean, I, you know, I, I remember talking to people when, when, um, you know, when I was called here and I, you know, a lot of those, I, I was what the third or fourth per pastor who was called here. So it wasn't the first one, but I remember just the process of having call meetings and going through a calling process. That was the first time that the members of this congregation had done that in 25 years, probably the first time a lot of people had done that. And um, I think they were a little shocked at how little information they had. Um, it's like, it's a sheet of paper, like with my whole life on it. That's it. Here's my education. Here are some of my likes and dislikes. Here are a couple of my gifts. Uh, here's my wife and her background. Um, the calls I've had, um, that's about it. And I think people oftentimes look at that and go, how are we supposed to make a decision based on this? And, and I think that's kind of the point is, um, yeah, at the same time, 
recognize and understand that the Lord wants us to prayerfully take time to discuss the candidates, their, their qualifications, their gifts, their strengths and weaknesses and everything. But at the same time, um, can we remember who really is the one working behind this process and through this process? Um, and, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, there are other, other church bodies who do, for example, like the, the calling situation differently. Um, I remember probably the, the biggest Lutheran church in Salt Lake City when we were there. Um, it was outside of our fellowship. Um, one of the bigger ones, uh, probably the most wealthy one. Um, they were vacant for two years, not because they were calling and couldn't get anyone to take it, but because their, their calling board that they had established um, was just, you know, fine tooth combing everything to make sure that they had the absolute best candidate they could possibly find. And until they found that guy, they were not going to call him. And then what did they do? They call him, they fly him in for the weekend they have him preach a sermon teach a bible class um they have a big meal for him and then after he leaves they immediately have a meeting and they get together and say well what do we think um you know should we call him or not and it's like man um you know that just, like I, I i would think that probably a lot of guys could preach a humdinger one-off sermon um pull out the best bible class you have um i i just you know what i mean so I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. I get, we're not we're not told exactly how how do you carry out the calling process, right? Um, there's no you know kind of step by step prescription on on God says here's how you go about the calling process for a new pastor. I mean, when they when they wanted to find a replacement for Judas, what did they do? They cast lots. I mean, they essentially rolled dice. Um, you know, we could do that right? <laughs> just, just get a list of guys' names and put numbers next to them and roll the dice a couple of times and whatever number comes up, that's the guy. Um, I mean, there's no, there's no necessarily right or wrong way to do it, but I would say I think there are ways that are more wise in how they still confess that this is the Lord's church and the Lord's servant and we're, we're entrusting him to be the one who provides. Now, does that mean that every guy who gets a call is the perfect fit and, and everything is going to go swimmingly so long as you go through the correct process? No. Um, um, it just isn't, right? I mean, it's this. <clears throat> things are going to happen. Uh, mistakes are going to be made. Um, I, I, I don't think every guy gets a call because God wants him to take it. And you kind of just have to wrestle with it and figure it out. Um, and sometimes guys will accept the call for the wrong reason. And that usually doesn't end well either. Um, I mean, I've known guys who, who took calls to places when their wife specifically told them, I am not going. And he said, well, I, I won't want to and I think it's a it's a good time a good place for us and they left and they went and either he left a year later or they were divorced I mean he didn't heed the words of his own bride and so I mean again all of this can be messed up that's what we do right um it it isn't this uh 
you know, how, you know, the, the old Testament way of the Lord picking his prophet, man, that would be so much easier and so much better. But, but even look at that, right. Um, even that wasn't flawless because the people weren't right. Yeah, it is. It is. Right. And, and, and again, I would say, I think that that passage um, from Hebrews five is a really big one. Right. I mean, I, you know, you kind of just look at sometimes the, how do some of these mega churches get started? Right. I mean, it's, it's a guy who shows up and says, well, I felt like the Lord was calling me here to start this church. And I'm not saying that he couldn't have been and that he wasn't. But I wonder sometimes if that isn't a man sort of kind of, you know, taking this honor upon himself. Um, so, so will I say, is it possible for a pastor to not be called by God? Yeah, I think it absolutely can happen. Yeah. Uh, maybe more difficult for us to pinpoint when that is the case, um, but 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 definitely possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, it is. It's uh, it's an interesting process, and I wouldn't say that ours is without its its cracks, uh, without its challenges. Um, the way we do the call process is by no means perfect. Um, I think it does strike a pretty good balance between the people are still the calling body. So let's who do, let's let's wrestle with this. Let's think about what what are some strengths that we we need in an under shepherd at this time in this place. Um, let's have those good kind of congregational ministry quest, uh, conversations, um, get a list of guys who fit those. And then, you know what, come to a decision and then put our trust in the Lord. Um, so, I mean, I think we're blessed these days because, you know, now you can pull a guy up on Facebook or, you know, if you're calling somebody, you can go listen to one of his sermons online. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, you basically kind of had the same information, but you didn't even know what he looked like until he showed up, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, I, well, you guys have to be ready. This pastor you're calling has a facial. <laughs> I remember that. Clip. Facial hair. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't his thing. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I have it just because I don't like shaving every day. So that's about it. All right. Bottom of the page, 87. One last thing to kind of point out about uh, specifically pastors. Uh, Paul writes this to Timothy when it comes to the qualifications for being a pastor. Um, he writes, uh, Paul says, I want men. Now, remember, there are two different words, both in Greek and in Hebrew. Um, that especially in older translations are just simply translated as man, mankind, right? Um, and there's a more general word, which, um, you know, we would maybe translate today as like human beings, humankind, 
meaning all people, right? Um, but, but again, even some of the older translations uh, just simply say man or men, meaning mankind. We are talking about all people, just kind of an older way of talking. But then there is also the specific men as opposed to women, male as opposed to female. Uh, they, they did have the way of differentiating and specifying that. And that is the word here that Paul uses. Paul does not use the word in Greek anthropos, um, which is all of humanity. I want any and all kinds of people to do this. He says men. And to do what? I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. He's talking about a, a public leader in worship. Um, he goes on to say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Um, maybe a better translation here, to teach in such a way that she exerts authority over a man. She must be silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He also says it this way in, in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, God is not a God of, of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. And again, I, you know, people will look at this and say, okay, so does that mean that women can't uh, sing hymns? They can't speak the prayers? Uh, you know, they can't uh, speak the creed? They have to just sit there like bumps in a log and not say anything? No. Again, look at the context. What is Paul talking about? Um, in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, he's, he's talking about someone who is leading the corporate public worship of a congregation, somebody who the congregation calls to be that ambassador for Christ, who is charged with preaching and teaching and administering the sacraments and absolving publicly the sins of the congregation, right? So we're not talking about singing hymns. We're not talking about, um, you know, soloists. We're not talking about, um, you know, uh, participating in the worship life. None of that. Um, they are not allowed to speak, but be, uh, must be in submission as the law says. And, and again, some people will look at this and say, well, this is just Paul writing to a very specific time, to a very specific group of people. Obviously, this has now changed. Um, women are more educated now. Um, so, you know, we should, we should kind of open up the pastoral ministry to all men and women. Um, and I probably should get this passage in here. Um, but Paul also references when it comes to this, this principle of the roles of men and women and what responsibilities and roles that God has given to men and the roles and responsibilities that God has given to women, the apostle Paul uses as his justification in, in reiterating this, he says, because Adam was formed first. And what is he saying? that this is a timeless principle that God gives. And we talked about this a little bit back in our lesson on the fall into sin. Um, if you remember, right, what was one of the results of the fall into sin for Eve? Um, uh, the Lord says, your desire will be for your husband and he will lord it over you. Well, did Eve not desire her husband before the fall into sin? No, of course she did. The desire is not in this kind of loving, oh, I'm really attracted to him. Um, Eve, you were perfectly content and found complete fulfillment in your role of being Adam's helper, 
This is why I created you. And Adam was perfectly content and found complete joy in being your head, the first one who was called to love and serve and to, to, to guide and guard and protect you. Um, and both of you have ruined this, Eve. Now you're going to want to be the head. You're not going to want to lovingly submit to your husband anymore. Um, and, and he's not going to be your loving head anymore either. He's going to lord his position over you. Um, and so strife in marriage um, and, and, and really where does that carry over into, um, I would say, you know, uh, I mean, geez, just look at the gender confusion we're dealing with these days, right? This is all a part of that, that we see no, no differences. We want to, we want to boil every human being down to a nameless, faceless, genderless, um, thing. Um, and it's like, well, no, that's, that's, that's not God. God is a God of order. He's a God of peace. Um, and we've, we've taken this now and we're living in a world of chaos and he doesn't want that for his church. Okay. So we would say, here's kind of how we summarize and apply this. When a particular form of the public ministry, such as the pastor requires that a person exercises authority over everyone in the congregation, both men and women, then the Lord specifies that only a male should hold that position. Um, and this is probably the least popular thing about us these days. Um, and it just kind of is the reality. Um, and, and yet, I think this is, I mean, this isn't uh, just a, a Wisconsin synod thing. Um, this is the, the, has been the, the practice of the Christian church from its inception. Um, and it goes right back to scripture. Um, so we strive to carry that out. But that isn't it. It isn't just the public ministry that the Bible talks about. It isn't just kind of this official capacity of a pastor. Um, there is also this beautiful, wonderful, comprehensive thing that the Bible talks about that really every Christian has their own perfect ministry. That simply by being called into the family of God, you are also called in such a way as to serve other people with the message of the gospel. Up to page 88. Peter writes this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And you see the, the words in bold print right above that passage in your notes. Um, we sometimes refer to this as the universal priesthood of believers. Um, that, um, you know, if uh, your spouse sins against you, um, do, do you have to send them in to me so that your spouse can be forgiven. Well, no, you have the authority to forgive him. You have the authority to forgive her um, because this is it. You are a chosen people, real holy nation. Why? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You do that for your spouse. You do that for your kids. You do that for your neighbors. You do that for your coworkers. Um, you know, Peter, you and I have talked about this a lot, right? Um, in reference to the, the coworker you have, well, why, 
you know, why was I born here and into this family? Why didn't God put me in a place where I would have been raised a Christian? And it's kind of like, here it is. I'm standing right in front of you. Here is the Lord calling to you and he's doing it through me. Right. Um, so a, a very beautiful, um, very powerful, very encouraging, I think, um, doctrine, understanding this, um, that the Lord has not only called you to be a follower of Christ, um, he has called you to be a proclaimer of Christ um, in word, in action. Um, we take that seriously. Ephesians chapter four, Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. There it is, right? Paul is not just referring to the pastors there. He's talking to the entire congregation. Romans chapter 12, he says, For the, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. My hands do not do the same thing as my feet. My ears don't serve the same purpose as my eyes. They all have their own function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Oh, I love that. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Um, and it's just a good opportunity for to remind all of you, to remind each of us, that there are no purposeless members in the body of Christ. Um, I kind of talked about that in the sermon last Sunday. Um, you know, sometimes maybe you feel like you've got no gifts, nothing to contribute. Um, there's something you can still do. Right. Um, and do not think for a second that this is not an immensely important aspect of the Christian life and of the congregational life, um, to pray for your fellow believers, to pray for your pastor, um, to pray for your congregation. But look at the list, right? Um, you can find yourself in there. I know you can. Um, and, and though your, your, your humility might say, nope, I don't have any of those gifts, come talk to me. I'll tell you which ones you have. Um, finally, then, 1 Peter chapter 4 Peter says, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides. Um, so again, who is the one who provides these, right? To say, I don't have any gifts is to say that God has not gifted you. And, and, and while you may comfor be comfortable saying, I don't have any gifts, as sort of a, a humble admission, I don't think you would be so bold as to say the lord hasn't gifted me with anything um so i think it's just good for us to kind of remember that to say that you have no gifts is to say that god has not gifted you and he has um and 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 here's a couple of different examples right kind of break them down as speaking gifts right there are some people who are gifted with being able to speak um gifts in evangelism or or shepherding um, or exhortation or teaching 
people who can can clearly communicate the word of God. And then there are people who go, you put me up in a front in front of a group of people and forget it. I'm not a speaker, right? Um, okay, well, maybe you have serving gifts then. Um, gifts that are just as important. And 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 while they they maybe don't don't firsthand communicate the message of the gospel. You you are like the men holding up Aaron's hands, right? Um, you're you're there to support and to serve those who do, um, supporting leadership, administration, showing mercy. Um, you know, prayer could be one that we could add in in either one of those. Um, there you have on the 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 small catechism um, a breakdown of the keys. Right, we talked about this especially in our last lesson. On absolution, this is really what we talk about, refer to the ministry of the keys. Um, so Christy, again, if you're looking for kind of that symbol of uh, sacramental symbol of absolution, um, I would say it's the keys. Um, and that the idea of um, absolution is what? It's unlocking heaven to someone. When you say to someone, um, I forgive you all your sins, you're not just telling them, hey, you're forgiven. You're telling them, hey, you're going to heaven. Heaven is open for you. You have nothing that would prohibit you from entering heaven. All of your sins have been removed. All of your sins have been washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, nothing is barring you from getting through those gates, right? That's what you're saying. On the other hand, um, along with that is also the locking key. And so again, when we tell someone your sins are not forgiven, when, 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 you know, I have to, 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 to put someone under church discipline, when we have to acknowledge somebody has excommunicated himself from the body of Christ, what are we saying? When I speak those words of forgiveness, they are not for you. Um, and so, again, what is, what is locking heaven? It is saying you are holding on to the, the very things that prohibit you from having life. Um, and we'll, we'll talk on Sunday, um, the sermon on Sunday, Jesus encounters a man like this, he wants to know what he has to do to be saved. And Jesus says, very simple. Um, and yet the guy says, nope, can't do it. Um, well, okay. Then recognize what you're saying, right? I'd rather hold on to my stuff than follow you, Jesus. Okay. Well, understand and recognize then where that stuff will end you up, okay? Um, so there's the small catechism, the keys. Um, the last section there is in our worship life. Uh, one common custom used in our worship is that our pastors, and unfortunately it's becoming less and less common, sadly, um, uh, that our pastors and other worship leaders wear vestments. The elb is a simple white robe that is styled after the tunic. And I probably should have brought these out. Um, I don't wear an elb anymore. I have one. I, I wore one when I first started here. If we have like a guest preacher, someone who comes in, chances are that's what they're going to wear. It's just the it's just the 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 standard white robe, right? Um, kind of pictured with the, the guy um, there in your, in your notes. Um, it's styled after the tunic, which was the most common garment in Jesus' day. Uh, the stole 
is a colored scarf worn over the shoulders that reaches below the knees. In Jesus' day, the stole was a sign of a government or military official's rank. Um, we still see this sometimes in like um, graduation ceremonies. People wear like the, 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 the ropes around their neck, kind of the same picture. It's something, it's a way to acknowledge somebody in a certain position of authority, somebody who has given a certain responsibility, right? Um, today's uh, pastors wear it as a sign of their ordination into the ministry. And, and the picture of it is, what can, can you sense? Something to do with the animal world. What does a stole kind of remind you of? It's meant to be a picture of a yoke. Um, if you, if you, you see, uh, if you grew up on a farm, you know, I say that to kids now, I say yoke, they, they, they only think of an egg, right? But, but to yoke an oxen is right. It's to put that kind of large either piece of wood over their shoulders, or maybe the one that's more formed around their neck. And, and what happens um, that allows both the, the ox to, to carry, to pull the, the cargo behind him but also allows the person to kind of steer. Um, and, and we oftentimes pick, picture a yoke as being a burden, right? Um, so is this what we're saying, that, that we lay the burden of the ministry on our pastors? No. What does Jesus say? Yeah, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, right? It, it, is, it is not to be this picture of a burden, but it is, it is to be the yoke of the gospel. Right, it is to be a reminder um, every time that when a pastor puts that on, which is again why I think it's so sad and foolish that so many of our pastors do not wear vestments anymore. They're they're so they're so um, prioritizing. They're so uh, worried about looking like everyone else. I just want everyone to view me like everyone else. And I tell these guys, okay, then. Um, just sit in the crowd then someday and let somebody else preach. You're not like everybody else. That's kind of the point. Um, if you were, then they would not have needed to call you, right? So the, these vestments, they, they serve a purpose, right? There's a reason we've been wearing them forever. Um, and I think to just get rid of those um, is very unwise. Um, and, and it frustrates me to no end. Um, what I wear... Um, of course, I, I wear I wear the stole, um, but I wear what is called a, a cassock. That's the black gown, and then the surplus, which goes over it, the the white gown. Um, and this is just kind of commonly what is worn um, when you wear the clerical collar. It's more of a uh, kind of more of a historic um, vestment for a pastor. Yes. So yeah. And it's not, it's not heavy. Sure. Um, nothing wrong with that. I, I would say the difference is the difference between how I feel when I go to work. And how I feel when, and I'm not talking about me, I, 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 sometimes, but I mean, just in general, and how I feel when I walk home. I have, 
I have very important responsibilities in both places. One probably feels more times than not like a burden. I have to do this. Otherwise, I don't get a paycheck and, um, you know, uh, I, I can't provide for my family. My children are a heavy responsibility, but they are not a burden, right? They're, they're heavy in the sense of I understand and recognize what's at stake, but they're not heavy in the sense that it's like, oh, I have to do this or else um, I'm not going to be able to X, Y, and Z. And I think that's kind of the picture, right? Of when, when Jesus talks about, um, yes, being a Christian, fo following in the footsteps of Jesus is a heavy thing. Um, when he says, pick up your cross and follow me, that's no easy, light thing. But he also recognizes and understands what, what really is the thing that is going to be calling me, driving me, um, pulling me along as I do that. It's going to be the gospel. And nothing that has anything to do with the gospel is burdensome. Right? Um, it, there, there's nothing about the gospel that is a burden. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, like I said, I, heavy in kind of different ways, right? Um, and, and yeah, I think uh, heavy, but more so understanding and recognizing the importance, the seriousness of it. Not heavy in the sense of, uh, oh, I can't drag this thing any further, you know? Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, finish up this, uh, this paragraph. In some churches, a chasuble is also worn. Um, if you've ever seen this, uh, my dad wore them growing up, but they're really expensive. Um, the, this, it's this poncho-shaped garment, so it goes over the top of everything else. Um, is modeled after the coat or cloak of Jesus' era. In services today, a chasuble is worn by the pastor only during communion services, which, again, obviously for us would be every week. Um, this custom is a visual way to remind worshipers that the, uh, the pastor and others who lead worship do not represent themselves or express their own ideas. Rather, those who serve in worship serve as Christ's representatives and ambassadors. Okay, here's our summary. Top of page 90. There is one invisible church. It includes all who believe that Jesus has taken away their sins and given them eternal life. Members of this church may come from many different visible churches, but only God knows for sure who they are. At the same time, God commands any visible church to teach his word and its truth and purity. We therefore insist upon faithful teaching in our own church and avoid ministry participation and partnership with visible churches and organizations that don't have it. The primary work of the church is to apply the forgiveness Jesus won to repentant sinners. The church does that through preaching and teaching, baptizing, communing, and absolving. Jesus also calls on the church to withhold forgiveness from those who are impenitent, unrepentant. Christians call ministers, uh, pastors, teachers, professors, and so on. To, uh, to publicly carry out the work of the church on their behalf. Christians also exercise the universal priesthood of believers when they share their faith with others and use their talents to serve others in the church. All right, what questions do you have?
Well, that's what you do. It's the first thing you do when someone's born, right? You give them a name. Yeah. And and having been reborn in Christ, we are given a name. And that name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we are members of that family, God's family. Um, and not that Israel is not a beautiful name, um, and not that we can't even claim it as our name. Paul says we are Israel. We are the true Israel, right? And that's what he's talking about is the invisible church. Um, but I, I think it's, um, we're more than people who simply struggle with God which is what Israel means, right? To wrestle with God. Um, we're, we're more than that, right? Um, we're children of God. We're, we're redeemed by God. We're the family of God. All of that goes together, right? Yeah, so. All right, well, everybody have a wonderful evening. Thanks for coming. We've got a couple of lessons left. Looking forward to finishing up with you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week.